0: you know as catholics we often have to are called to defend the papacy which is rooted in scripture and sometimes we get the argument that you think he's god that you think the pope is this ultimate ruler do you know what the actual technical title the official title of the pope is it's the servant of the servants of God. It's the actual official title. And we see that that's what our Lord is calling here in this scripture message. Now, i like to point out when I was teaching catechism that I, we had a couple of years I had some really advanced classes. It was a lot of fun because I could challenge them. And I remember asking them, who was the first apostle? And sometimes you get a stare look other times Some said, well, Andrew, that's pretty good for a seventh grader. Was Andrew the first apostle? Who was the first apostle? Well, if you're reading the Gospels of John and Matthew, it was Andrew. But if you're reading the Gospel of Luke, the first apostles were James and John, as we read about here. He called them while fishing think you could say that's what happened to me. <laughs> I enjoy fishing. We get out very rarely now, but when we do, it kind of connects you with God's creation. Now, we see here, though, as we have in many cases, the mom getting involved. We've all had that mom, right? God bless my mom. She's not able to watch the live streams anymore, um, but mom, I love you, and and you, my mom was never an evasive mom. My mom never pulled the coach aside and said, why aren't you playing, Chris? My mom never went to the teachers and said, how come you haven't made him the, you know, the valid, well, the, whatever it is. She never did that. So I can say thanks, mom, for not having done that because that's embarrassing sometimes. What do you think James and John felt as their mom stepped up in the other version of this? because we hear this version where James and John did it, but in another version of the Gospels, their mother did it. Let's look at this for a minute. Moms like to get involved. It's their nature, Um, as I was just mentioning. My mom didn't, but I I remember I had a real good young wrestler kid. I, I coached a brief time in freshman wrestling in high school, and we had this really, really good wrestling kid, and I remember telling the story before that he was so individualistic, didn't care too much about the team. He was only a freshman, so I was trying to get him to understand, even though wrestling's an individual sport, unlike the other team sports, it you have to bring the team in. And I remember I'm, I'm saying to him that there's no I in team. And he actually answered yes, but there's an M and an E, me. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember his mom coming up to me because... She wanted me to do this. I'm just a freshman wrestling coach. I mean, I was doing it part-time. I did it over breaks. It was nothing. But she got involved. So the woman who came up in the other version of this um, is interesting because in this particular version of Mark, we don't see the mom, but you all know that version, right, where the mom comes up and says, I want you to put my sons at your left and your right. So I wanted to talk about that because who was that woman? Well, the Gospel of Mark says that the crucifixion, there were three women who looked on from afar. So, you know, at the cross, we had James and we had Mary, the mother of Jesus. But the Gospel of Mark tells us that three women looked on from afar. Now, who were these three women? Well, we know from Scripture that they were Mary Magdalene. She was one. Mary but it says, not our Mary, the Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. That's why it's very confusing in the Bible when it says Jesus had brothers and it says James and John, whose mother was Mary. Everybody says, there you go. Mary had other children. It says Mary. No, this is Mary, the wife of Clopas. All right? And then there was Salome. Do you remember the name Salome? Salome was mentioned That's who this woman is. This is the woman that came up to Jesus and said, I want my boys to sit one at your right and one at your left. This is who Mark calls Salome. Now, Matthew, if you read his gospel, he calls her the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, who are the sons of Zebedee? James and John. So, James and John, their mother, they're the sons of Zebedee. Their mother is this who we're talking about. Now, John, the Gospel of John, calls her Jesus' mother's sister. Whoa, I didn't know Jesus' mother had a sister. Well, it was interesting, because in seminary, I asked that question of Monsignor Toro. And the mother of James and John, if she was Salome, And John says this was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. I thought Mary had no siblings. And then I read the Ignatius Study Bible. And surprisingly, Scott Hahn takes that view in the Ignatius Study Bible. And so I was like really amazed by this. That's not against our faith that Mary may have had a sibling. Now, it was miraculous that Mary was conceived because they were in their old age, Anna and Joachim. But in this case... This would mean James and John were Jesus' full cousins. Very full-blooded first cousins. Now, if that's the case, maybe they felt that that entitled them to a special place in the kingdom. That was the issue with the Jews. The Jews felt that they belonged or were given a special place in the kingdom because they were from Abraham. They were descended from Abraham. You see... This is important because sometimes we think entitlements. You know, um, it's an honor for me to be a Marian, and we take, and right now with us is Brother Mark and, and, and Brother Ken and Brother Alex, myself, we've taken perpetual vows, which means we take the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. You've heard me mention that before. And we're lucky enough to have Brother Jason with us and exciting for him to take his perpetual vows next year. But why do we take I think you've heard me say this before, why do we take the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience? And that's because the gods of the world, small g, are sex, money, and power. Now, to overcome the God, small g, of the world of sex, we take the vow of chastity. To overcome the small g, God of the world of money, we take the vow of poverty. And to overcome the small g, God of the world of power, we take obedience, now, there's a fourth one that is mentioned often and it is called honor. Is honor a good thing or a bad thing? Honor, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us, is actually a good thing. If you have honor, that means people will listen to your message. The question becomes, what message are you giving? So, for instance, the first three are very dangerous if we fall into those becoming our gods. That's why when a professed religious such as myself goes to confession, if we've sinned against obedience or, let's say, poverty or chastity, I didn't sin just against the, virtu- or the, uh, the virtue. We've sinned against the vow. And that's why it's more serious. And that's why we need prayer, and we pray for you guys, too. When you sin against poverty, chastity, and obedience, and misusing them, you sin just against the virtue. We as religious, if we sin against poverty, chastity, and obedience, meaning we misuse them, we sin against the virtue and the vow. And so with honor, it's interesting, because honor can be good if it's used for the glory of God. And so to give the glory of God, giving his due, is actually a virtue. Do you know that's why religion is actually under the virtue of justice. People are like, well, I don't need religion. Well, you need virtue to get to heaven. Well, I need virtue to get to heaven. Yeah, but it has nothing to do with religion. I'm not into organized religion. Actually, religion is under the virtue of justice because what is justice? Justice isn't revenge, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Justice is giving someone their due. And when you come here and all of these beautiful people are worshiping God, you're giving God his due through the beauty of religion, and that is a virtue. So you're giving God his due. The virtue of religion is under or should say the act of religion, is under the virtue of justice. You're giving God his due. He's due your worship. And so this is what James and John are missing here. They're worried about their honor. We want to sit at your right hand. We want the throne. Well, that's fine if you're in a place of honor, but you got to be using that honor for the glory of God. And that's the message here. So anyway, in Matthew's version... As I said, the mother was asking. Now, why do you think Mark didn't have the mother, but Matthew had the mother? I think Matthew was trying to protect James and John, because he didn't want to make it look like they were the ones asking. Let's, let's, let's blame it on the mom. That's what he always used to say. Well, my mom said that, not me. So anyway, Mark shows the human side of these two guys. They're the ones that asked. They're the ones that came up. He shows the human side. They're the ones asking Jesus himself. But in Matthew, it's the mom. So anyway, James and John showed ambition, though. Yeah, that's not a bad thing. In spite of all Jesus said to them, the ambition has to be for God. There's nothing wrong with ambition, but it has to be for God. And so that's what this teaching is. It's about humility. In the reading of St. Faustine at the end of Mass, we're going to hear what our Lord has to say about that. Now remember, humility is not, I've said this before, but it's so important. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. And I always use that example that would be like Barry Sanders saying, you know, I really wasn't a good football player. As I've said before, he was the greatest ever because he did it with no support. But Barry Sanders saying I wasn't a good football player is not humility. It's a lie. He's a great football player. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So Barry Sanders, when he would score a touchdown, wouldn't do some dance and cartwheels and be taking his helmet off and pointing at himself. He would simply flip the football to the referee and run to the sidelines. And so I think that was an example. So it's it's important for us to do it, but as misguided as James and John were to come, to tell Jesus, we want to be at your place of honor, they were still doing something right. What was that? Following Jesus. So even if all of us here today, those sitting in the pews, me up here, you on the live stream, even if we are lacking still in that area where we're not yet doing all for the glory of God, the very fact that we are here means God is working in our heart. It means you are on the right track. It doesn't matter right now if we found perfection. We'll get there through the grace of God and divine mercy. But what matters is that you are coming. It's like the confessional. When people come into the confessional, they say, Father, you have no idea. I'm a lost soul. There's no hope for me. I've heard this before. And I always say to every one of you, and this was said to me in the confessional. They talk about times where things affect you as as you, you grow. This was said to me in the confessional years ago. And I've repeated it to many in the confessional. I don't even have to know you to know you're a good person. And I remember saying to the priest, Father, did you just hear my confession? And the priest said to me, yes, but the very fact that you are here shows that you're on the right track. The only time you have to start worrying is when you stop coming. And I said, Father, I'm never going to stop coming. I need the grace of God. I'm a broken man. I need God's mercy. I need God's grace. The only time you got to start worrying is when you stop coming. And the very fact that you are here in this pew, up here with us in the live stream, the very fact that you are here is a beautiful sign that God's grace is working in your heart. Even if it's your spouse that had to elbow you to sit down and watch this. It means God is calling you. And this is what the message is. And so anyway... I think it's really important because um, as misguided as they were, James and John were still following Jesus. You know, James, he's the first and only apostle who's mentioned in the New Testament of his martyrdom. We know from tradition that the others were martyred except John, but James was the only one who was listed in the New Testament. He was beheaded about 11 years after the resurrection of Jesus. He was executed by Herod himself in Jerusalem for what many believe was his fiery temper. Uh-oh. When we get passionate, we got to be careful. I know this first thing. Passion can be easily, easily construed as temper. And that can't happen. And I know that firsthand because we get into those situations where we want our passion and our emotions take over. And that's what happened with John, it says. Many believe that he lost his life because Herod didn't like his temper. Well, it was passion. And the legend has it that the angels took his remains on a rudderless boat, unattended, and sailed him to Spain. Why Spain? Because before that he lived in Spain. Remember, the apostles were sent out, and for years his he lived there, and his remains are at St. James de Compostello. You ever heard of the way people walk that thing they called the way in Europe? That's part of the way, the ending, I believe. And so what about John? Did John die? Was he he martyred? Actually, John was not martyred. He did die. But before that, he was boiled in a large basin of boiling oil in Rome. But he survived. He didn't die. So both of them drank a cup. James drank the cup of martyrdom. Now, some of us, hopefully we pray not, may have the cup of red martyrdom, where we actually shed our blood. I've talked with Brother Jason about this before. Some of us believe that we may be called to martyrdom. The way this world is going right now, this is craziness. And I try to somewhat keep in shape. I try, I'm really not good at it, but I'm trying to get to the gym periodically. I can trust you, it's not for vanity to get into the gym is because someday I believe might be in a concentration camp. And we're gonna need priests to be able to serve and be able to uphold the people there. I, I just honestly believe that might happen. Work camps, whatever it might be, prison even. I mean, the way we're going, maybe not a work camp or concentration camp, but maybe at least a prison. And so these are the things that James and John faced, James and John faced, James faced a red martyrdom. He was actually shedded his blood, shed his blood, and died. James died, but John actually also drank a martyrdom because of the daily life that he lived was a persecution, hard labor, and Patmos, all right? For him, the cup was constant discipline and the struggle of life over the years. For James, the cup he drank was martyrdom. For John, the cup he drank was the cup you're drinking, getting through every day, getting through the next hour, being able to get up with anxiety, depression. When Brother Jason and I wrote our book, he had an excellent handle on, on what it's like because of an experience he had in his life, if you've read our book, that talks about how to, to, to withstand tragedy and the loss of loved ones. And so that daily life, just getting up the next day, Getting through one more, you're drinking the cup. Don't think that this is punishment. Don't think that this is God hates me. Don't think that this is God abandoned me. What this is, is God saying, You're sharing in my cup, you're sharing in my passion. And what does that mean? That one day you're going to share in his resurrection. That's what gets us through. It's called hope. And that's why we named our book, There's Hope for You and for Them, meaning those who have taken their life or those who have died by tragedy. There's hope for you left behind. There's hope for them. And there's hope for you left behind. So it's quite wrong to think that the Christian cup must always mean shedding your blood. It could be your day-to-day task of perseverance. You know, the cup may be the long routine of our Christian life, daily sacrifices, daily struggles, and the saints tell us that it's not accomplishing great things that makes us a Christian, but it's how faithful we are in our efforts. So anyway, to finish, this is, well, you know what, I think I'm going to skip that part. You guys have heard me a lot for now. Um, I will say this, though. We have to learn that great Greatness lies not in power, but in service. As I said, the Pope is the servant of the servants of God. It's not about some high-power position. The world will respect, admire and sometimes fear a man of power. I used to um, date a woman who was an academy graduate of the West Point, and she said that she always talked about the two kind of leaders. There was Patton, and there was Omar Bradley. Patton was a great leader, but he motivated by respect and fear. And she said, but then there was Omar Bradley, and he led by the love of his men. Which kind of leader do you respond to? It depends, I guess. But the kind of leader that Jesus was, was both. He did not command fear, but a holy fear is the beginning of wisdom. And so it's what Jesus did when he said he will give his life as a ransom for many. This is what God did for us. No greater love hath a man than to lie down his life for another. Remember the penalty for sin is death and what Jesus did was pay that penalty for us. Jesus is the one who stands in the place of us guilty sinners and offers himself as a sacrifice. That's why we're here today. And praise be to God, that you're here responding to that grace that, as I said, means God is working in your heart.
1: Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org.